Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Just Slap Podcast brought to you by Just Slap Tennis, the pound for pound number one tennis channel in the game. Uh, your host, Steven, uh, and joined by a very, very special guest that I have been itching to come on the podcast since we started this thing. Uh, he's an ATP professional with a career high singles ranking of 125 in the world. He has several challenger titles, qualified for Grand Slam, played a season at Wake Forest when he was the runner-up at the NCAA tournament. I mean, you know, former top 10 junior player in the world. He is the founder and CEO of Behind the Racket. Ladies and gentlemen, Noah Rubin. Noah, thank you so much for joining us, man. No, thank you so much for having me. Um, I forgot to mention in that intro, actually, uh, arguably one of the most important things is that you, my friend, are... A New Yorker as true as they come. And uh, and yeah. maybe that, that doesn't mean much for a lot of people, but for considering for myself, who I grew up playing tennis in New York and obviously got into a lot of debates with some of the other kids from other sections or obviously international players. And you know what? I got to tell you, USDA Eastern gets a little bit of a bad rap for being a weak section or whatever they call it. But you, you were my go-to player to go with. I mean, I was like, listen, USDA section, say what you guys want to say. But we produced Noah Rubin. All right. So I don't want to hear anything. Um, it's uh, it was definitely a funny start. I mean, obviously, everybody, the initial is that you can't make it playing indoor tennis. You know, that's always the first thing that everybody says. How, how are you going to play tournaments if you're playing indoors, you know, 10 months a year? And for me, New York was home. And for my family, that's, you know, they always forced me there. My father, who coached me my whole career, said, you're not going anywhere. You know, we spent some time yeah. in Florida. But we're, we're just not Floridians. You know, I enjoy some time there. And obviously, I travel for tournaments. But New York is where I uh, want to be. And to this day is where I am. That's awesome. And and actually, this is a great, great segue. Because speaking of your family, I mean, from what I understand, your grandfather stumbled on some courts in, uh, in Queens and was like, I need to start playing tennis. Taught your dad. Your dad taught uh, you and your sister, I believe. And, and has been there with you uh, every step of the journey. So shout out to uh, shout out to your dad, because it is Father's Day today at the time of this recording. So shout out to your dad specifically, but also all the other uh, all the other tennis dads out there. Um, so I guess a good question to start is, I mean, for everybody who's been coached by a parent, uh, it, it's it's interesting because you hear certain you hear certain stories that sometimes scare you. What was your dad coaching like? Was, was did he did he put a lot of pressure on you, or or was he more understanding? Yeah, no, uh, you know, my father and I actually had to call the cops on a few parent-child relationships that we've seen, and then kind of borders that line of abuse and goes past that line. So it is it is very scary. So when people you know hear that, especially in the world of tennis, which I think is so foreign to so many people, I call it kind of an Olympic sport. It's kind of like that figure skating where. You're removed from school early on, you know, if you really want to be a professional and then you're stuck with your parents or your coach and your training hours. So it has like the stigma around it. But I was really fortunate with my father. I mean, there were definitely times, um, you know, that pressure was applied, but it was in the right direction. It was make sure the effort's there, make sure you're not breaking into my rackets that I'm buying for you that, you know, early on he stopped buying for me. So that argument didn't, didn't really work out, but um, it was more the idea that if the effort's there, it's okay. It's okay to lose. You know, it, don't worry about the money we're putting in. Don't worry about the travel. You know, it was tough to grasp how much they're sacrificing. You know, my mom was working at the camp so we can go to camp for free. My father was losing jobs because he was traveling with me to so many tournaments. And, you know, it was only later on my, you know, junior career where I really understood. But 
Yeah, I mean, it was a lot. I mean, we saw a lot of troubled relationships and I was so fortunate to have somebody, you know, two people in my life that cared not only about my tennis, but about me as a person. And that was really why I stayed in New York is because they wanted me to be as cultured as possible. They wanted me to stay in school as long as possible. Um, so it wasn't really this whole idea of tennis, tennis, tennis. Uh, I played soccer, you know, until I was 13, until I really couldn't, you know, risk getting injured. And again, stay in school, did freshman year uh, public school and then did, you know, and then went online after that. But I know kids that were going online at, you know, in sixth grade and fifth grade. So we really tried to push that normalcy as far as possible. So I was definitely uh, lucky to have them. Uh, absolutely. And, and uh, I mean, coming from me, I mean, my, my parents are pretty much exactly how you how you uh, how you described your parents. And, and it definitely was a blessing on my career. Um, so, you know, you mentioned, you know, your mom, you know, working at the camp to kind of to kind of help out and, and, and your, your parents really investing a lot. I mean, I remember because I mean, I've been following you for a very long time. And I remember, I believe, I think it was after you won Junior Wimbledon, where I think, I don't know if it was New York Times or Wall Street Journal, but they, uh, basically an article, article came out about the cost of producing a professional tennis player. And it kind of, uh, it went into detail about, you know, your story and your family story. You know, tennis gets the rap because it well deserved it. It is a very expensive sport. And, and it, it, it sometimes, unfortunately, uh, stops great talents from emerging because of how expensive it is and that, and that sort of barrier to entry. I mean, can you just talk about a little bit some of the some of the struggle and maybe financially or, or otherwise uh, when it comes to kind of developing you as a player from a very young age? Yeah, I mean, we're talking about a couple hundred, even more thousand dollars to, to produce a junior tennis player. You know, the problem is, I mean, and this is the difficulty as a professional athlete in, in, in tennis as well, is that there's no team atmosphere, you know. So when I'm talking to friends, uh, that played soccer, the idea that a coach isn't guaranteed is such a foreign idea to them. So, you know, as a, as a young junior, you have to make sure you have that coach you're looking for. I mean, that's where parents come and, and they're super involved, which is not always helpful, but it's because it's saving them money, it's saving them thousands of dollars a week. So, you know, it's a really difficult situation. And with tennis, the two other things is court time is very expensive. It's, you know, when you're talking about other individual sports, maybe uh, boxing, you know, you can go to a gym and it's not as quite as expensive. You can train with other people, but with tennis, you're paying for the court time, whether it's part of a clinic, a private lesson, you're paying for the court time. And then the difficulties really start coming when travel costs get involved. That's really where everything comes. So if you're playing national level tournaments, even just below at sectional level tournaments, you know, you're paying for hotel and you're at nationals and you're paying for flights. So you're, you're racking up and, you know, for the most part, you're a junior, you're not going by yourself. I was fortunate enough to have some help from the USTA and travel with them at times for larger tournaments, especially international tournaments, um, which saved a lot of money. But for national events, I was, I was with my family and to understand that they had to pay for a flight for two people minimum out there. They had to pay for the hotel for all those days. None of that was included. It's a lot of money. You know, that's a lot of money being spent. And yeah. in the end, you know, I was fortunate enough to be less than 1%, the 0.01% of junior players that come out of, of junior tennis and, and USTA, you know, tournaments. Um, you know, there's a lot of kids that spend that money and families that spend that money that don't see necessarily um you know, the benefits and, and the, the cost analysis, when you put that into effect, it's, 
not always coming out on the side of the family. So it's it's a little troublesome at times. It really is. And I think that's where all the pressures kind of boil up and they come together and, you know, the parents don't always deal with it correctly. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and it's, it, you know, that financial pressure, even if you do end up making it to the professional tour, I mean, that's that's felt for basically everybody outside, really like the top 100, top 150, right? That like the financial like, unfortunately, even if you are a professional tennis player, you know, it, it's difficult, I would imagine, to focus on just the tennis when you're like, OK, well, you know, I got to break even at this tournament or, or, you know, this tournament set me back and, and, and stuff like that. And I've heard you talk about previously about an idea where <clears throat> when it comes to reallocating funds and, and sort of having a, a, a base salary for all players and, and, and making prize money kind of like a bonus on top of that. Um, could you go into a little bit more detail? Because I, I thought it was really interesting. Yeah, I mean, you know, when you talk about it, there's just no stability. And when there's no stability, that's, you know, being, you know, producing behind the racket and, and being in the mental health world for a couple of years now, a few years now, and kind of taking deeper dives, you know, that lack of stability is troubling. You know, it really is. So you see the players dealing with it, and it's kind of the snowball effect where, they don't have the financials to start the year. So they're kind of starting off on the wrong foot. Uh, they're not prepared. So they go into these events. They're not doing so well. And they actually don't make money because they're not doing well. So then it's the snowball effect. And you can't pay for anybody to come with you. So you're still not prepared. And it's kind of just going in a cycle. So, you know, when you look at a base salary, which it's not always good for the headlines, you know, every, you know, the US Open loves throwing out their $4 million check of the winner. And we get that, you know, we know that tennis is an elitist sport. It's what they've kind of doubled down on for so many years at this point. But um, yeah, if you started the year knowing that, you know, and we're not asking for much, let's say you're 600 in the world, 600 in the world and you make, just give them an extra $10,000 just to start the year and say, Hey, this is what you have give you a little lead way to start. And then, you know, we see where your end of year ranking is. And from there we give you kind of that base salary. Again, I don't know how many players that includes, I don't know how many players, you know, tennis can afford to include in something like that at the time being, I mean, I've looked into a lot of numbers, but at least for players that we're looking at the 200 to 300 to 400 range where, you know, these are high level professional tennis players, you know, they really are. And you're telling me that you can't come in and have an idea of, oh, okay, each player is making 75 grand. You know, they're getting, they could get an extra 30, 40% on top of that, maybe even, you know, 70, they could double their money if they're doing really that well. But at least let them know that they, that their kid is going to be fed for the year, you know, that it's an okay, stable income. And I think that's the issue where for such a demanding sport with the physical and mental injuries that you take place, you know, like I just, I'm at 500 in the world right now. You know, I'm working my way back. I, um, this is the longest I've kind of been at this level in a long time. And, and I don't know how players are doing it. You know, it's really scary. It's you, luckily I I've been successful in the past, but you know, every week you're looking, you're like, can I afford to be out here this week? I really don't know. Um, so it's, it's been interesting to see that. And I really do think that, you know, tennis can change the, the, the dynamic of, money and players and how we see that all fitting together a little bit differently. So for all the, all the Noah Rubin fans out there, can we get, can we get a little update on, on how the, the current season is going and, and some of the short-term and long-term goals that you have uh, uh, set up for yourself? Yeah, it's been, it's been a little bit of a hectic time in the past year and a half, I guess from, I mean, even 2019, but you know, 
end of 2020 and then 2021 i was kind of taking time off wasn't sure if tennis was what i really wanted to do you know i was getting really sick and tired of traveling i was exhausted my body was getting beaten up um i weren't i wasn't really seeing the benefits as much as i thought i would you know that's kind of going into everything else i've spoken about in the past with you know uh the cost of it and and how demanding it is and being away from home and a lot has changed this year i mean i've worked really hard to get myself in the place where i want to compete i want to play you know i think two things i realized is you know the same old wasted potential you know i want to see how far i can push myself uh you know the fact that i haven't been inside the top 100 um is is just something that eats away at me a little bit um and i think i already started regretting it you know in my little kind of retirement tour that i put myself through you know and and you know, the second thing is, I think there's a part of me that I can only find competing on the tennis court. And, you know, I haven't found anything else. I'm possibly can find in something else. But right now, the only place I know where to find it, that competitive spirit, that fight is on a tennis court. So and, and competing at a high level, not just, you know, practicing. So I think for me, I worked hard with psychologists. I, I worked hard getting my body in shape. And, and getting myself to a place where I wanted to compete. So I saw some, a couple of good results, you know, with a couple of challengers in Portugal and seeing myself come back to it. Um, I had a, you know, a few personal things. My, you know, one of my close friends getting married, my girlfriend and I moving in together and then she graduated veterinary school. So there's a lot of personal changes, but I'm finding kind of my own stability now, which is nice. I think that's something I haven't had um, almost ever in my life, you know, having that home with my girlfriend and, and being in New York and really feeling like I have a place to live. And um, it's, it's giving me that stability that tennis is not. So I think it's allowing me to kind of refocus everything on tennis and saying, Hey, your, your, your other life is okay. You know, it's going okay. You have all your other ventures as well with behind the racket, some of the other stuff I'm working on. Let's see what you can do with tennis right now, because you know, it's your prime is coming up, you know, in my head prime is 28 years old. I'm 26. You know, this is where I'm fighting for to see how far I can get. And let's let's see what I got. Dude, let me let me just I just want to interject something real quick. The way you move on court, I, I that that 28 prime thing. I, I don't I, I think you could for you would probably be pushed a little bit farther. Um, so much so that you might be the only tennis player that basically broke their shoes when you when you beat John Isner. Uh, so so I, I think uh, I think 28 might be uh, a little too early. But I'm glad you I'm glad you did mention uh, behind the racket because I mean behind the racket is, is sort of taken the the tennis world by storm ever since you launched it and you are the founder and the CEO so I mean obviously for the people that don't know obviously go into explaining you know what behind the racket uh, actually is but also like what what are some of the projects that you guys are doing I know you guys have a podcast and and there's the BTR tour um, so that's the first thing and the second question is kind of like a parlay on the last question which is have you found it difficult to manage uh, behind the racket while also being a professional tennis player and traveling and, and being on tour? Yeah. I mean, I'll go into the second part first and just the idea. Yeah. It's a lot. I mean, I think the first part is you need a side hustle is lack of a better term kind of thing, but you need something else going on. And that's not financially because to be honest, I did have not really made money from behind the racket. You know, it's something that's a work in progress. It was more, altruistic more than anything else um 
but yeah, there's so much time on the road. There's so much time where negative thoughts can creep in, especially as a professional tennis player that for me, especially, but I'm telling a lot of junior players or players coming straight out of college and playing professional tennis that you need something to kind of ease that mind, to put you in that Zen. So uh, behind the racket became that. Yes, it got to a point where it was a lot. You know, it again, where I started, it is altruistic. I wanted it to be just a little project that I was starting and it kind of blew up to something way more than I ever expected. So it was, uh, it was 2019, uh, end of 2018. So like mid to end, I, I was dealing with kind of this roller coaster. I mean, towards the end of 2018 was my career high ranking. That's my, you know, the beat brought up breaking my shoot against Isner. Um, I had some of the best moments of my career, but prior to that, I had one of the longest losing streaks in my career and started dealing with anxiety and depression. Um, and, and really found myself, I remember it clearly. And my girlfriend remembers, I was, remembers it very clear. I was in Spain, hysterically crying after losing first round qualities of a challenger. I'm like, what am I doing? Wasting my time here, not making any money. I just won a challenger a few months back. Now I'm losing in the qualities of a challenger. What's happening? What is this all for? And then in the past three years after that, I mean, what a roller coaster of reaching career high rankings, you know, being a top 10 player. And then going back and, you know, not winning a match for another two months and then qualifying for Wimbledon. And then it's like, oh, my God, what is what is this? So through Behind the Racket was kind of giving players the opportunity to share their own story. And, you know, for me, since it's an individual sport, nobody was really that open and saying, hey, I have these issues. This is what I'm dealing with. It could be personal. It could be on court. It could be public. There's a thousand things going on that nobody talks about because it's this like toxic masculinity on, on both sides. You know, it's just this idea that if I share, you know, the troubles that I'm dealing with, that you're going to think less about me and you're, you know, we're going to be in the third set fighting for the match and you're going to have the upper hand. And that's kind of this, you know, antiquated idea. So I, I just wanted to kind of break that stigma, you know, which is something that's been a fad for the past couple of years is the idea of breaking the stigma of mental health. But you know, it was a little bit before kind of some of these things were coming out. So people were <laughs> definitely apprehensive, you know, when I was opening up to them about my story and then asking them to open up to me. And, you know, I had a couple of close friends to me that were fortunate enough to share their story early on and to trust me that I was, you know, going to uh, do the right thing by them. But it, it exploded quickly. You know, CBS Sunday Morning picked it up, Wall Street Journal. And, you know, I just wanted to make sure that I kept it as organic as possible, but it wasn't easy. I mean, you know, I, all these people talking in my ear about what I should do with it, what I shouldn't, if I should stop it, if I have to, ex you know, expand it. I was just like, it's early. I just want to let it take its course. And I just want to make sure that I have a safe place for players to share their story because, you know, the media is, is a really, <laughs> it's like the wild west at times, especially in individual sports. And, uh, you know, when it comes to these players, they're, they're really shy. You know, they haven't been able to, to open up like this. So when I'm talking to them and they're like, well, I don't have to talk about my forehand or my backhand. I'm like, no, like, you know, I heard about your mom. Like, what happened there? I heard about you. And, you know, it's, it takes a second for them to, like, kind of break down that wall. But once it happens, it's extremely emotional. Uh, you know, it's me, either they're crying me, you know, at times it's laughing, you know, it could be a billion different emotions, but it's, it's just true emotion. And that's something that I don't think we get to see too often. 
Yeah. And, and it's interesting because, you know, within the last year or so, you, you're starting to see more and more players kind of even in traditional tennis media, you know, be more open to talking about mental health and, 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 and challenges that they've overcome. And I, and I personally believe that, that, you know, behind the racket was sort of like this early pioneer in like bringing that mental health awareness into tennis, because that was definitely something that was missing and, and not talked about. Um, so in, in the beginning, I, I, like you mentioned, it, it, uh, it, it might've, you know, some players might've been more apprehensive onto coming on there and sharing like some very detailed personal things about their life, because that's not how, you know, traditional tennis media is. Uh, have you found it easier now, now that you've kind of built this reputation and, and, and obviously people trust you, but also, you know, you have other players kind of talking about it to their friends on tour and, and has it been a little bit easier now that it's, uh, it's definitely grown a lot. Yeah. I mean, you definitely saw kind of this building momentum in a, in a way where, you know, you know, I had definitely players that said no straight off the bat. I had other players not really understanding the point, you know, what, what was this all for? Because everything has to be for something. And I think a lot of that has to do with the agents involved in tennis. You know, you know, even though I'm friends with them, I want to give the agents respect and, you know, I go through them and they're like, what are we getting out of this? You know, it's always the idea of what we are getting. And I was like, you know, that I, it's so much more than that, you know, and I wanted it to be so much more than that, whether, you know, I wasn't going to pay these players to come on for 10 minutes and talk about their feelings, but I wanted to have a real conversation with these players. And, you know, the, what I thought was going to be eight, nine minute conversations were 45 an hour, you know, conversations, hour and 10 minute conversations. Um, Cause they just, we're just people talking, you know, just me talking to somebody else. And, and I think it took a while for people to grasp that and, and agents to this day, some of them don't still, but I saw the players understanding and, you know, I would go, you know, play tournaments and I wasn't even asking, uh, you know, these players to, to talk about it or to share their story. And I'd be crossing a player and they'd be like, Noah, I'm not ready yet, but I think I know what I want to talk about. I'm like, what are you talking about? And they're like, well, I think I might have my story and, and what I want to share. And, and I'm like, okay, that's fine. Like, take your time. Like, don't worry about it. But, you know, in my head, that was so powerful because it was just the idea that they were thinking about their emotions. And it might have been the first time in a long time. And it might have been, you know, one of the early moments that they found in their career where they sat down with themselves without really noticing and said, hey, what's going on? You know, well, what am I dealing with? what's going on in my life and to check in on themselves. And a lot of those small moments, which might not mean a lot to the outsider, were just extremely powerful for me and, and was the reason I kept going, even, you know, even though it was exhausting at times to keep it up. Yeah. You know, it's like, I mean, I've seen from other interviews and, 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 and stuff that you've done yourself uh, where you are definitely not, I feel definitely not afraid to kind of, speak your mind and, and, and say exactly what you think, even if that maybe isn't something that is the consensus or something that's often talked about. And I'm guessing from, from what I've seen is that leads to a lot of questions where people start to ask Noah about problems in tennis. And, and I, I mean, I don't know, I'm sure you get obviously a lot of questions about your game and, and, and all that stuff, but like, have you felt that you, have been somebody that, you know, traditional media or alternative media has gone to, to kind of talk about some of the problems that, that, that we currently have in our sport or, or ways to grow it in the future. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to say, and it's kind of true. I mean, you know, tennis only gives a seat at the table to the top players, you know, it, it really, you know, you have to, 
you have to be a top player. You have to be a Kyrgios to some respect or broke down a barrier. But I, I found myself having a seat at the table that I didn't really earn tennis-wise. You know, not saying that I was a bad tennis player or am a bad tennis player right now, but ranking-wise of being 120, I had to see had a seed in the media and and with amongst other players of being a player that was 20 in the world, you know, in some cases. And, you know, that was kind of the given respect without giving respect of, of just asking me the questions and, and, you know, media coming up and trying to find the tennis landscape through me. And it doesn't always mean they quoted me, but they kind of got the landscape of everything just by talking to me. And, and I appreciated that. And, and I don't, hate being the pioneer by any, you know, I'm a New Yorker, like you started, you know, I'm fine with being the face of it. And, you know, it's, it's kind of the, you know, low key arrogance that I bring to the table, but that's, that's just what it is. And, um, and I'm not going to say that behind the racket was the, the initial pioneer. And I hope it did help and enable players to be outspoken about mental health, but at the same time, it allowed me to be in conversations and phone calls that I wasn't necessarily in and, and to share my opinion and believe me, a lot of people told me just to keep playing tennis. And when they said that, they also said, well, you're also not very good at tennis, so you probably shouldn't even do that anyway. So I was used to that. But at the same time, even if they got 1% of the other side of how I saw tennis, of how a lot of people see tennis, and you know, some of the ideas that I brainstormed of, of what could actually in, you know, evolve the sport, to bring more people into it and to help the players that are a part of it and the sponsors are part of it. If they got even 1% from it, then that's enough for me. But uh, I keep working to, to, to do a little bit more. <laughs> Dude. I mean, listen, respect. I mean, it, it, I could see how it would be difficult once you actually get on tour when it's basically, you know, tennis players, obviously because they've, you know, their whole lives they've been groomed and it's all about their tennis and, and tennis is a very selfish sport. So to go there and, and, Go to that stage and and you know play Grand Slam tournaments and 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 beat the guys that you've beaten. It's it's very easy to just be like you know what, I'm just going to focus on me. This is a very big problem that maybe one guy can't fix, but it does take people like you that aren't you know aren't afraid to speak up their mind. And I'm sure it has you know a big factor is the fact that you are from New York. And because you are from New York, this leads me right next to my next question, which is growing growing up in New York. Uh, it's every New York's New York tennis player's dream. To uh to play you know uh, at the U.S. Open, and uh and my basically my question is, is like it must be a lot of pressure I I would imagine for you um I I know I've heard stories and maybe you can confirm this about the uh the uh I believe you played the bonus the bonus um yeah. where yeah, yeah, yeah your first year and 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 I believe that you had physically like you couldn't breathe during the match yeah that was one of the God, I haven't had too many matches like that. Probably on one hand where I just, I had to get off the court. I was just looking over. I was like, I have to get out of here. I just, I can't walk anymore. I can't breathe. Um, yeah, the US Open is is a lot. It's a lot to deal with. Mm -hmm. I mean, for a normal tennis player, it's a lot to deal with. I mean, it's one of those hectic, it's in the city. It's not always easy to travel to. Um, and then as a New Yorker, you can ask the other ones that have played as well. You know, you have the third grade teacher coming up to your matches. You have all the friends asking for tickets. It's it's a lot. It's just a lot going on. Um, yeah, it's um, it's funny. I've always done okay in the qualifying. You know, it's not my worst uh, Grand Slam qualifying by any means, which is strange. So I've managed to deal with it at times. 
But at the same time, it's just like I've never really been able to break through at the U.S. Open. Um, and my best events are the Australian Open, which is halfway around the world. So it's like I kind of like being, <laughs> you know, I love playing in front of people. That's kind of the arrogance and everything and love showing off. But I don't like knowing the people. So, you know, mm. I played in front of 15,000 people. But playing in front of a thousand people that I know is like, oh, you know, like this. And it's just so much going on. So, you know, I've always tried to find ways to kind of get through that. And I haven't really, I've, I've managed it at times, but I haven't gotten over the hump. So, but at the same time, it's like, you know, one of the main reasons I'm still playing is I need a night match Arthur Ashe. I, I just need yeah. it. I need it in my life. You know, I don't care how many people are there. I just need to be night match Arthur Ashe. And if, Whatever it takes to get there, I think I'm kind of ready to do it at this point. Hell yeah, man. Absolutely. I mean, we had we had Jamie Loeb on the pod, and I know you guys are friends. I know you guys, uh, you know, trained to, to, together or whatnot. Um, and, and that was sort of my, my, my question to her, you know, about, about coming to New York and, and playing at the Open and, and sort of the pressure that you guys have to deal with. So, I mean, I'm definitely looking forward to that night match. Um, so uh, I'm obviously going to keep my eyes on the draw and uh, – I'll, uh, I'll, I'll try to buy the most expensive seat that uh, Just Lab Tennis can afford, but uh, <laughs> judging by our budget, it's not going to be that much. Um, uh, kind of taking a little pivot here. I mean, <clears throat> going, I mean, I played, you know, Division One tennis, obviously not at the level that you did, but um, what I did find interesting is when you did commit to Wake Forest from that one year, first of all, your deal was also, I don't know if you were the first player that, that was offered this deal, or, or you're definitely, I think, one of the first players where, you know, you basically play for one year, but then you get an additional four years of school, I believe. Um, but what was surprising to me was the fact that, I mean, you were top 10 junior in the world, right? And 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 at that time, I believe Wake Forest was ranked like something like in the 30s or top 30s in, in, in programs in the country. So kind of what was what was that decision like? Because I feel like a lot of players would 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 find it surprising that you didn't go to like a you know, a, a USC or a Stanford or, a, you know, a, um, you know, one of these other top schools that is, that's constantly bringing in titles, you know, every other year, Virginia, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I think, uh, you know, it was a long process. I mean, that summer 2014 was really busy for me. I win Wimbledon uh, two weeks later, I win singles and doubles uh, Kalamazoo. And then that gets me into singles and doubles main draw of the U S mm -hmm. open. So it was just so much happening. So the first thing was, am I going to school? Am I? You know, a lot of people are saying no. You know, that was kind of the time where you kind of go straight pro. You know, I knew I was going to get the check from the U.S. Open. Who knew kind of the sponsorships that would have lined up after that? Um, and then once I figured out that I was, because uh, I kind of figured out, you know, when talking to a few of these schools that this deal was on the table, I thought I was one of the first players. I think I might have been the first player that got the deal um so putting that into the equation of how much my school costs uh i was not big on putting all of my eggs in one basket my mom's a teacher my dad was always big in the studies and we thought it was going to be a good change of scenery you know we we don't like skipping levels so we want to make sure that hey we went into college and you know you kick everybody's ass and then you can go on your way but don't think that you're better than people just because you are a good junior we don't know what that next level looks like so I wanted to prove to myself that I did kind of complete college tennis in one way, shape or form, um, which I don't like thinking about, but I was two points away from the title. And, you know, I still lose a little bit of sleep over that. But, you know, in my head with the few matches I've lost, did pretty well that year as a freshman. Um, I did what I had to do. Uh, but, yeah, that decision 
was narrowed down geographically school-wise. You know, I was not going to be a West Coast guy. I mean, Stanford was kind of a dream school for me. They didn't really have a great, great team at that time. They were almost unranked, if I believe. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, staying on the East Coast, looking at that, Duke was in the mix. It, but it really came down to UVA and Wake. And mm -hmm. UVA had all these top players. They were number one in the country, winning titles. And for me, it was a lot of the players I grew up playing uh, nationals with and ITFs as well. And I kind of wanted to be top of the campus. I, I kind of wanted to have that pressure on the school to say, hey, if you mess up with me, you're not really going to get another player after. And that's kind of what this feeling was. And, and I knew Tony Bresky at the time. He was assistant under Brian Boland at UVA, heard only good things about it. And it, it was a good year. I really, I don't regret it. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. I almost regret not going an extra year. I miss college tennis so much, but uh, yeah, it was it was a lot of decisions to make very quickly uh, the summer of 2014, and and I, I picked the right places, so I, I'm happy with it. Uh, if it if it makes you feel any better, uh, my senior year got canceled because of COVID. I was one of those one of one of that one of the players from that year, and uh, I mean, I I I I still want to get back out there to be honest, but yeah, uh, you know to to. New another year of school is uh, is definitely tough. Um, okay, great. And then uh, another question is, I mean, you, you know, you, your junior career, college, I mean, you went like, it, it, I feel like when you go on the pro tour, I would imagine it's a bunch of people that are used to winning. Like you guys are, you guys are obviously for the most part, top in your country or top in the juniors, top in college. Um, what's the process been like? When, Cause obviously, you know, on your way to becoming a professional player, you're, you're, you're going to lose it. And it's, 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 it's going to happen. So what, how has your mentality shifted on dealing with losses from you, from when you first became a professional player to, to all the way now? Yeah. I mean, that's a good way to put it. A lot of, you know, you just win a lot as a junior and the pros, most of them did win a lot. You know, you have a few outliers that kind of fought their way through and clawed and grinded. And yeah, they, somehow made their way and sometimes they're 200 500 whatever it may be but most of these were top in the world top in the country so to have that kind of culture shock moment of like i'm losing a lot of matches <laughs> you know and then I'm, I'm not only playing the other best but i'm playing the other best from you know 10 years before me you know that's kind of what it is so you know i had a really good year right out of school i was moving up basically 100 spots a month until i got to like 160 in the world so it didn't really hit me until my first injury. So I think the idea of dealing with an injury was very new to me. I didn't really get injured as a junior. Um, I had a couple in college, but you don't really feel the repercussions of that because you kind of get thrown into the lineup at the same spot. It's that team idea. But as a pro, you get to 160. I you hit it. I didn't really understand protected rankings at that time. I tried to play a match, so I kind of lost the protected and I fell back to 350 in the world. And I started really understanding that, the ins and outs of that. And it was a lot. And that's kind of where the emotional roller coaster came. And yeah, you start learning that if you don't deal with losses very well, it's going to take a toll on you because you're going to lose. You don't win tournaments. You know, you just, you win a tournament a year. That's a pretty good year. You're probably playing pretty well that year. So um, again, I played well enough, even through some of the ups and downs that you know, the first four years out of school or five years out of school, I won a challenger every year, you know, and that's how it was. And I was very fortunate to have that. And I did well at basically one grand slam, you know, or I had a main draw to slam almost every year. So 
I, again, I was in kind of that 1% for a lot of that, but dealing with it now, seeing what it's like at the 500 level and, and clawing my way back from zero almost, I, I don't know how a lot of people, you know, stay on this path. I really don't, you know, you're losing a lot and you're not only losing on paper, you're, you're losing financially, you're away from people. And, you know, it's, it's a lot of this, you know, changing mentality because as a junior, besides the winning, um, you feel like a pro, you know, at the top level of the junior tennis, even at nationals, it has this kind of, you know, elitist mentality where now you're at the futures and nobody cares, you know, not, not one person cares. So it's a lot to deal with. And, and I think, you know, the quicker you can learn that you're almost worthless and you have to fight your way and claw your way and, you know, and work your way towards something, um, the easier it gets because uh, it's a tough transition for sure. Yeah. I mean, we had, um, uh, we had Mitchell Frank on the pod and, and, and something he talked about is how kind of uh, the way he put it was how uh, Stevie Johnson, because I, I think I might've brought up the question, but I was like, did, I asked him, did, was it difficult playing college tennis after Stevie Johnson went undefeated for a year? Uh, basically kind of telling you that you, you have to go undefeated and you can't lose in order to kind of be a professional tennis player. And he said that that was something that he kind of struggled with was the idea that, you know, you, you just have to win all the time or else, you know, you start to like question yourself. So that, that, that definitely, uh, it, it makes sense how that that's gotta be something that, uh, a lot of up and coming professional tennis players, uh, have to deal with. Um, so I, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but a few more questions here. Uh, you, I know, I know you must get asked a lot about your match with Federer at the Australian Open. So I'm not, I'm not going to ask you about it, even though I, I did watch the match and I did enjoy the match and I was rooting for you. But um, I mean, I know you, you in, in practice and exhibition and stuff. You, you basically played all the top players, and 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 uh, I'm going to phrase this question as: Who has been the most difficult matchup for you on the on the pro tour? Or name you can name a few guys. Most difficult matchup for me. Um, it's tough. It's probably probably the guys that play my game, but just a little mm. bit more evolved. At or it could be that day, you know, just playing it better that day, or 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 more, you know, playing kind of those guys that I really can't outgrind. You know, that I have to try to find a way to hit off the court. And I'm like, do you ever get tired? Because I don't. And it seems like you're not getting, you know, you have an extra six hours left and I'm kind of struggling a little bit. So it's, it's those guys. And I think that's kind of what a lot of players struggle is, is when they come up against somebody that resembles their own game, but is just doing it better that day or is just better at it than them. Um, you know, I think I have kind of a interesting game where for my height, I'm pretty athletic. So my serve is pretty big when I'm serving well, um, you know, I have, some big shots when I need it. And I'm not just a grinder, but also my movement is going to be a major factor in my game. But uh, yeah, when I'm playing the guys that I'm just like, yeah, you're not, you're just not going to miss, you know, that's, and they can do it for hours on end. Some of these South Americans that are just, they live and breathe, just let me hit a tennis ball over and over and over again. Those are the ones that I struggle with, but you know, that's why, you know, playing the bigger guys, the Isner match or playing some of the bigger ball strikers and, I kind of enjoy it. You know, I can counter punch against them. I can play my game and make their life a little bit of a, of a nightmare. And those are the ones I have enjoyed. 
Yeah, I, I mean, as long as you stay in your shoes, I think, uh, I think, uh, I think it'll be fine. <laughs> so another thing that gets kind of brought up a lot, and and us obviously playing college tennis and 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 really enjoying that. I mean, I feel like most players that play college tennis really enjoy that. A lot of things that get brought up are like in the introduction of team tennis and 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 sort of like you know adjusting the score. When we're old guys, you know, you know, at you know, when we're 70, 80 years old and we're at the country club, what do you think tennis is going to look like? What are some of the changes that that are going to happen uh, to the sport over the next few decades, you think? Yeah, I mean, I have hopes that it's going to be a bit more fan friendly quicker. I mean, it doesn't have to be the same league or tour or whatever you want to call it. I, you know, this is something I've worked on a bit and I've seen other people and kind of want to join efforts, but. You know, just hoping that there is a little bit more of that fan friendliness we're seeing in almost every other sport that whether within, you know, the initial league with a side league, whatever it may be, that there are speeding up the games a little bit and, and trying to get the new generations involved. But, you know, in terms of the actual play of, of tennis, um, yeah, history repeats itself. We get to a point where the game gets so, so fast that it almost, it almost gets slow again because mm. it's so fast and, and we're seeing that and you know we're seeing that the game got so physical so are people going to start coming to net but people hit the ball so hard so coming up to net is difficult and it kind of goes through these waves of of how tennis tactics are uh what it looks like but all we know for sure is it's only going to get more physical uh the guys are only going to get stronger uh taller quicker more agile um we're seeing it with the you know just the average 18 year old that's coming out now is kind of a freak of nature of some sort. So it's, uh, you know, watching Alcaraz and you can say what you want about him. And it's, it's just a lot, you know, it's just a lot to deal with. You know, you're looking at him, you're like, I don't know what his weakness is and does he ever get tired? So, you know, I think that we're going to get to a point where it gets so fast that the game kind of slows down a bit, but, you know, I think we're going to see those serves coming in at 160 soon. I really do. So, you know, I think it's going to be sooner than later. Yeah. All right. Last question. I saved the most controversial question at the end. Noah, what's your favorite pizza in New York? <laughs> oh, it's so tough. That's really tough. I don't want to offend anybody. You got to uh, pick. You got to pick. Oh, God. Uh, you see what I did there is I just took I just took 99% of the brand deals that you could have possibly gotten in the pizza <laughs> game. That's yeah, what I just did there funny. for you. Um, yeah, it's. So I have to say, and it's against everybody, you know, because I'm, I'm going to steer away from a plain slice for a second because I grew up on a buffalo slice in Long Island mm. in La Piazza that literally whenever I have the chance, which has been often, I die for because I'm basically gluten-free and lactose-free. So it's not the easiest thing to be doing is putting down mm. a pie pizza. Um, oh. It's so tough to pick one. <laughs> it, is, it is so difficult. Um, and and I, I would say a plain slice of pizza. I'm sticking with Long Island. I, I know that's people frown upon that, but uh, like I've, done, I've done the city. I've done New Haven as well, which is definitely not at this point underrated, but has been for a long time. Yes. All the top ones. And uh, there's D'Angelo's in Huntington. That if anybody gets out into Long Island, this is – could be my favorite slice in New York, to be honest, even in the city. Okay. Yes. Okay. There you have it. There you have it. Ladies and gentlemen, there is the final answer. 
Noah, thank you so much, man. Really appreciate you coming on. It, it was awesome talking to you and, and, and best of luck with everything you're doing. Guys, if you live under a rock and you haven't checked out Behind the Racket, I, I don't even know what to tell you. All right, <laughs> let's let, let's get it going. And uh, and yeah, man, best of luck uh, all the season. And and uh, I, I can't wait to keep watching you, man. Honestly, thank seriously, like from coming from New York, you are you were definitely an inspiration of mine, you know, for growing up. So so keep at it. All right. Appreciate it. Thank you. And, and and guys, so we can get more real deal guests like Mr. <laughs> Noah Rubin here. Hit that like button, hit, comment, whatever you think about this episode and make sure to hit that subscribe button. Stay healthy, stay happy. And as always, just laugh. Take care, everybody.